0: What's your brand? Brand is defined as a unique design, sign, symbol, words, or combination of these employed in creating an image that identifies a product and differentiates it from its competitors. Over time, this brand or image becomes associated with a level of credibility, quality, and satisfaction in the customer's mind. We buy certain brands because we hope to get a better product. And often we purchase these brands with hopes that we will be just a cut above the rest. I think we want to be associated with particular brands. Hopes of enhancing our social status somehow. And this is why knockoff products exist, right? Uh, when we were in China, one of the funniest things was going into the little markets and seeing all the brand name emblems on products that were not made by the brand name company, right? Uh, I remember I bought a nice pair of headphones. What would have been a nice pair of pe- headphones for like was Archer Kwai, like 20 Kwai is like $2 maybe. And here, a uh, pair of headphones with that same emblem would have been like $200. <laughs> and so uh, sometimes we're not interested in the quality of the product, but being associated with the brand on the product. There's some twisted thing inside of us that causes us to want to feel superior to others by way of being associated with something, in in this case, a brand. You've done this a little bit in your own life probably, right? You don't just drive a truck. You drive a truck that's built Ford Tough. Not just a car. It's the ultimate driving machine. You don't just drink a cup of coffee, you drink Starbucks coffee. Right? Not just a tractor, it's a John Deere tractor. Nothing runs like a deer. I always th- that, that, John Deere tractors always make me laugh because when Elliot was smaller, you all know he loves tractors, but we were outside of a tractor supply or a Lowe's or something, And we were visiting my mother in law and stepfather in law, and he's sitting up on a John Deere tractor just playing along. And my stepfather in law comes out of the store and he says, Boy, you get off that John Deere. Don't you know we're Kubota people? (laughs) He was associating with a different brand. It's not just a donut you eat, it's a Krispy Kreme donut. Next level. We want to be associated with particular brands because they make us feel superior to those people that eat regular donuts, drive regular tractors and trucks, drink normal coffee. Somehow by being associated with the brand that is of great quality, we assume that we are of a finer quality. Simply by association. The in our text this morning, we're going to find that the Corinthians are fueling feelings of superiority by associating with particular brand-name teachers. And the result of their unhealthy allegiances is a messy church with rivalry among its members. At this point, I want to remind you that First Corinthians is in the New Testament so that we can see ourselves. I think we're a lot more like the Corinthians than, than we would like to admit We struggle with the same things they struggle with. We have dysfunctional marriages like them. There is sexual immorality among us like it was among them. We show favoritism like them. We struggle with insecurity like they did. We associate with counterfeit gods just like them. And we have a tendency to divide over silly things just like they did. Tom Rainer, I shared this with you a while ago, he he even blogged about some of the ridiculous things that have led to uh, church splits. I'm going to share some of those with you again. Uh, One church reported a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. And then he quips, this was the first official cabinet meeting of church leadership. There was a dispute in a church because the Lord's Supper had been served with crayon grape juice, Instead of just grape juice, scandal. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee, and one of the churches they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand, and the other church they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Once again, Rainer quips, "Perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship." And this is always my favorite. One church reported an argument over whether or not they should be allowed to serve deviled eggs at the church meal. (laughs) And once more, Rainer comments, only if it's balanced with angel food cake. (laughs) Here's the rub, though. That's not just churches and people out there. That's this church and this people. I mean, if you've been here long enough, you've probably been a part of some silly dispute yourself. If you've been here a really long time or you talk to somebody that has, they can tell you of former members' meetings that ended not in prayer, but with, meet me in the parking lot, and of fights over landscaping. These things are, are laughable, and they are things that dishonor our Lord. You see, what is at stake in disunity is the name of Jesus. Disunity dishonors Jesus, for it was Jesus who prayed in John 17, 23, I am in them, that is his disciples, his church, and you are in me. May they be made completely one, so the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And it was Jesus who said in John 13, 34 and 35, love one another just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Disunity, disharmony, unlove towards one another denies the name of Jesus. War within the church denies the gospel of peace. And so Paul exhorts these Corinthians who are quarreling among themselves, and he exhorts us to seek unity. So our main idea this morning as we uh, plumb into this text is to be the church. That's all of Corinthians, right? That's our main idea. And then this week is be united. Pursue unity. Just two parts. We're going to talk about conflict and then the foundation for Unity. Let's pray and then we'll read the text together. God, we need your help this morning. Um, we are a uh, messy people, a, a sinful people, a distracted people. And yet you love us, despite how disheveled our lives are despite how unfaithful we are to you, you remain faithful to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for caring for folks such as us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the promise that by faith in him we might live forevermore together with you and one another. You are so good to us. We ask that you might help us to taste of that goodness once more again this morning as we read of your perfect word. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. So it's First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I don't know if I told you that part, so uh, that's where we're going to be, and I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Paul writes, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry or quarreling among you. What I am saying is this. Each of you says I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. It's important to know that the conflict here in Corinth at the time is not of theological nature, but of power and political nature, right? It's a struggle of preference and whom is better than whom. See, the, the Corinthians are associating themselves with particular spiritual figureheads to the extent that they are separating themselves from one another. And so the Apollos crowd thinks they are better than the crowd that follows Paul, who thinks they are better than the crowd that follows Peter or Cephas. And there is this Christ crowd in there that thinks they're better than everybody. Uh, The Christ group, I I take the position that they are kind of like red letter Christians would be today or, or Gnostics. They, they're saying, you guys might learn from these human teachers, but we learn from the resurrected Christ and we aren't going to listen to anything that anybody else says except for what Jesus says, right? So if you've ever met a red letter Christian, it's only the red letters uh, in, in the Bible, only where Jesus speaks. And so that's kind of their position. That's how they're making themselves feel superior, uh, another tact that people say with this last group it says, or I am in Christ, is that this is Paul's own assertion about what they should be saying versus what they are saying. Um, I think the former is the better way to interpret it based on sentence structure and, and grammar and boring stuff like that. Uh, and that's where, mo- where I come down is where most of the commentators came down, um, which should be no surprise. That's the direction they led me in. At any rate, you have these different groups and these different identifications of people that are causing divisions and quarrels or fights within the church, right? It is of the nature of my dad could beat up your dad, and Virginia is better than Virginia Tech, except for it's coming to blood, right? Maybe those come to blood. I don't know how intense that that rivalry is. These disputes have led to divisions, and so Paul is telling them this is not the way it should be. He's exhorting them onto unity, Now, I need to point out, we're not being told here that Christians must agree on absolutely everything, all right? Not at all what's going on. Unity is not uniformity. The unity Christians are to seek is not a unity devoid of differences of opinion or conflict, right? If you've lived in a church for uh, more than a few minutes, you know this. You know there are differences of opinion and conflict. But the unity that we are called to is of oneness, It's of a a concern and a care for one another. It includes a theological unity that is very specific, but is not a oneness of ideas. Oneness in Jesus' church, and this is your blank for your type A's, oneness in Jesus' church is a musical harmony, not a dull unison. In other words, we are able to play different notes as long as we are in step with the melody of the gospel. We're free to disagree about a great many things. But more important than our disagreements is how we disagree. There are only two ways to engage with conflict. One is godly and one is ungodly. And Paul is setting the example here for us about how to engage in conflict in a godly way. We, we saw in the first nine verses that he was looking for evidences of grace in the lives of the Corinthians, and he is seeing them for who they truly are, called by Jesus, made saints by Jesus, empowered to be the church by Jesus, and so he's able to thank God for them, but now he's moving on to gently correcting them because he loves them. He's correcting them because in this particular situation, they are in sin, body of Christ is not divided against itself. I mean, if they had, been, had not been in sin, Paul's counsel here would be different as it is in chapter 8. They're talking about food offered to idols in chapter 8. He tells the group that thinks they should eat of the food offered to idols, hey, you're not in sin. And he tells the group that uh, thinks that they should not eat of the food offered to idols, he says, you're not in sin either. But, you know, take one another into account. Love your brother. Let love govern how you decide to eat meat or not eat meat. All that to say, when we engage in conflict, uh, we're either lovingly correcting sin or we are lovingly agreeing to disagree after doing our best to understand one another. Make sense? Right? So yes, there are things that all Christians must agree upon to be Christians. And yes, there are distinctives we must agree upon to be a part of a particular church or denomination. But there are also plenty of things that we are free to disagree about and still live in unity. A quick uh, side discussion here. Denominations, actually, sometimes people act like denominations are a really bad thing, um, but I actually think denominations help us to preserve unity within the church. Uh, My best friend is a uh, conservative Presbyterian, and he and I think the same about absolutely everything in terms of theology except for baptism right? I'm a Baptist. <laughs> and so, uh, and so we, we, even though we are best friends, we do not, have not in our lives worshiped in the same church on a continual basis as members. Like, they, he's visited here, he's preached here, and, and I've done likewise for them, but, but we could not belong to the same church because of our distinctive on baptism. Now, one of the things you, you, we need to do as Christians is learn to differentiate or do what we call theological triage between uh, the most important issues kind of important issues, and then things that are important but not worthy of dividing over. And so baptism is one of those that kind of falls, if we were doing one, two, three, kind of in the second, right, uh, where, where it's probably smarter for us to worship in separate assemblies to preserve unity, but it's not something that divides us in Christ, because ultimately we are united under the same gospel, under the same Lord, and we can come together uh, as, as friends uh, who are working towards the same end, which is making Christ known, So denominations help us to maintain unity. Imagine having a bunch of uh, folks that preferred infant baptism among us versus folks that thought that was not the best thing to do, and it it probably it would sow seeds of discord. So it's just smarter for us to say, uh, we're going to build a small fence around our yard and shake hands over it. Right? We're going to be friendly neighbors in the neighborhood of Christ and of orthodoxy. So all that to say, yes, we, we value what I would call distinctives, um, but even our distinctives are subordinate to our being in Christ, to our unity within him. So as, as Christians, uh, I already said, we already talked about theological triage, right? I'm figuring out what's a, the equivalent of a gunshot wound <laughs> versus a, a stubbed toe. Here's the truth, though. The sad truth is that the conflicts in Corinth and in most churches and in our church is that our conflicts don't even rise to the level of a stubbed toe. Our conflicts don't even rise to like minor theological differences. Instead, they're merely based on insignificant things like preference and personal status. See, the divisions we, we see in Corinth are an example of an ungodly approach to conflict, which says, I want to get my way and I'm not interested in listening to you. See, in our pride, we try to take hold of things that we crave that cannot satisfy, which in the case of the Corinthians is their social status or associating with these brand name and famous teachers. James four reminds us, he asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he goes on to say, your cravings for these things that you do not have, your pursuit of your selfish desires And it's this worldly attitude of selfish ambition among the Corinthians and among us that leads us into sin, that leads us into disunity. And and you can tell that uh, just by the words that Paul uses here that it definitely is a selfish thing going on. I I love uh, to point that this is a key word in our text, right? Uh, He says, each of you says, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Right? I, I, I instead of we, and I think Paul's doing this on purpose, showing us that they're interested in being about themselves. The Corinthians are, are self-focused, and they're dividing the church on the basis of their social status, which is derived from whichever famous teacher they are associating themselves with. And so they've they've basically kind of flipped Christianity into a competition in their midst. Uh, Their aim is to say, I'm going to be more spiritual than the person next to me. I'm more spiritual than you are. And the fruit of that pride is division. So I think a, a good question to ask yourself as we look at this text is, am I dividing the body of Christ by my pride? Another important question we need to ask is, what divides us or what threatens to divide us? I want to take a look at a couple topics, a little bit like case studies, and we're going to consider each and then ask two questions of, of each of our topics Um, We're going to ask, what does the Bible say about this? To try to figure out where it falls in our kind of uh, theological triage, whether it's a really important issue or not so important. And and then we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us together and for me individually? So what does the Bible say about it? And then what does it mean for us? I'm going to start with something easy. Music. We'll take music, for example, in the church. The number of churches that have actually or practically divided over music is insane. And I say practically because what happens in churches where they can't agree on this is they go, we'll just compromise, we'll have two different services. We'll have the contemporary service and the traditional service. And then the people divide themselves based on their musical preference. And Really, you have two churches. It's a common issue. I mean, no one can agree on what type of music most honors God, right? Some say the pipe organ. Others, the piano. Others still demand a guitar. Others think we shouldn't use instruments at all. So he ask the question, who's, who's right? I would argue none of them, right? If we ask our question, well, our first question, what does the Bible say? Throughout Scripture, we witness God's people worshiping him in a myriad of ways through music. We see them use just their voices. We see them praise him with dancing and the shaking of tambourines and with shouting and with a variety of instruments. Additionally, the Bible doesn't privilege one form of musical celebration of God above another. What seems important or the common theme or thread among all of these celebrations of who God is through music is their content is driven by a desire to honor God by speaking truth about it content is driven by a desire to give glory to God. And so that that brings us to question two, what does this mean for us or how should we then do music in church? I think it means that we do music to the end of celebrating Jesus by having content within art music, whatever kind of music it is, that honors God and brings him glory. Outside of that though, I don't know that there's really a right or wrong. I think it's all preferential. So, churches are free to figure out which music will best help them honor God. Um, so, uh, maybe some of you, your preference for music, you're like Dale, you think bluegrass is the only music. M- maybe you're like me, and, and you enjoy some Christian hip hop. Or maybe you most enjoy classic rock, like Josh. But see, our preferences don't mean that everybody has to like the same kind of music, right? Our preferences can't drive everything we do together because people have different tastes, right? Doesn't, all the church's songs shouldn't be in bluegrass. Maybe, maybe I was wrong earlier. Maybe there is a wrong way to do music. I don't know. <laughs> but my, my point here is to say a healthy church that is united in Christ will figure out which music helps them to most honor god to best sing to god about the glory of god to best remember the gospel together even if it's not their favorite music in the world because christians who have been saved are willing to give up our rights for the good of one another and even though we might disagree about which music sounds best we're we're willing to do with what will work best or what will most maintain unity and honor God, where we can be willing to have these discussions and, and disagree. So here we have an example of an area wherein we should unify rather than divide when we disagree about something that isn't of the utmost importance. I'm mean, look at about, to look, look at, the next one's a little closer to home, uh, and so I think it might sting a little bit Um, But I think this is a temptation for us in any church, really, is disunity because of different personal attributes. Churches, including us, are susceptible to unifying around things that we have in common instead of Christ. And so we form our churches a little bit like we would form a social group or social club instead of the kingdom of God. We want to be careful that we are not dividing ourselves along the lines of socioeconomic status along the lines of age, or of race, or of where we're from. Why? Well, because let's ask question one. What does the Bible say about divisions within the church based on age, race, status, or background? Galatians 3, 27 through 28. <clears throat> For as many of you has been, that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment... There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean those things that are unique to us cease to exist. Men are still men. Women are still women. White people are still white. Black people are still black. Asian people are still Asian. What it means is that all of these men, women, black, white, Asian, whatever background you come from, are all equally in Christ all are united in Jesus. All wear the Team Jesus jersey. and are not to be divided along these lines. As a result of being in Christ, Christians are to love one another and rejoice in how God has made us different from one another. Our unity in Christ is supposed to supersede all the other ways we have of identifying ourselves. It's so a question two: What does this mean for us? How should we relate to those who are different from us in terms of age, background, race, and economic status? Well, I think it's clear that in Christ we should treat one another as friends, as brothers and sisters in God's family. Now, how we do this can vary from church to church and situation to situation, but we must work hard at trying to be in true relationship with one another, to truly be united to one another. I think one of my uh, favorite things about our church is that in terms of being divided along um, lines of age, we've overcome what is a common division there in a lot of ways. I think maybe my my favorite example of that is uh, that Josh hangs out with Mike and Janie so much that uh, the waiter down at the Mexican restaurant thinks or thought that he was their son, right? He couldn't figure out, like, why would a teenager hang out with folks that are, how do I put this delicately, with folks who are retired. Like, why, why would he do that? Because of the gospel. Normal, not that we're not normal, but normal people in our culture, are, there are not a whole lot of teenagers that are hanging out with folks that are of retirement age because that's who they want to hang out with. This is how the gospel breaks down walls. There's a relationship that is built in Christ rather than on commonality or what phase of life we are in. Let's ask another question. How are we doing in terms of racial reconciliation? It's hard to say because our demographics here are a little awkward in our community and culture. But I do think that Dr. Martin Luther King's words still ring true. He it says it's appalling that the most segregated hour in America, is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I think he was right to be appalled. And I think we should be appalled along with him that these divisions still exist. It is to the church's shame that many of our assemblies are of just one color. The church in Scripture is made up of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and yet Jesus' churches, which are to be pictures of heaven on earth, are very far from the kaleidoscope of colors and cultures that we should be. Let's be sure that we are pursuing relationships with people that are different from us, from different backgrounds and cultures, people that are different colors than us. We dishonor Jesus by allowing these things to divide us. We are one in Christ. one of the ways that i think for our church in particular we are tempted to be divided and maybe we don't even notice it is by a common division in our community and you guys will be aware of this as soon as i say it i think that in in this kind of whatever amalgamation of people groups uh, up along 151 there is a division between the local people and the non-local people right You know what I'm talking about. There are those uppity, wintergreen, Stony Creek folks. Rolled in here like they own the place. And then there are those crazy backwoods local people, right? I mean, it's so funny. More than one of you have said to me, some of you have been here a, a really long time, said, I've lived here this many years, but I will never be a local. It's a, it's a real division. And I think it can easily creep into our fellowship if we are not on guard against it. Almost a, these are people of the true church, the old church, people that have been here forever. And these new folks are part of the new church. They, they just don't get us. And this other, the old church says, they don't, the new people don't get us, and the new people say the old church don't get us. So we're going to divide along these lines. No. No, our, our church should be a picture that flies in the face of that common division because we are united in Christ. My hope is that people from the community would look at our church and go, this doesn't make sense. they are locals and non-locals, and you can't really tell who's who because of the way they love one another and hang out with one another. Last example, and then we'll move on, I think is Politics. This is perhaps the most polarizing topic in our culture today. And I think the one that most threatens church unity as people associate with their political brand more so than their church. So what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible has a ton to say about culture and about how we should love one another. But it doesn't give us specific political policies or force us to adopt a particular political ideology. So what does this mean? I think because we are Christians, it means that we ought to um, form our politics in light of our Christian worldview. However, I think that there are areas where we could disagree about how we should form our politics in terms of this Christian worldview. So we should be able to have different politics but still be united. But sadly, far too many professed Christians form their Christianity in light of their politics instead of forming their politics in light of their Christianity. I've said this before, but the political left and the political right both have good things to say, believe it or not. And both have their problems as well, believe it or not. I think it's damaging to think that one political party perfectly represents Jesus. He was much more complex than that. I've used this illustration before, but I love it. In his book, Jesus Outside the Line, Scott Sauls shares an anecdote about how Christians should be able to be united in Christ and still vote differently. He writes this, During the 1992 presidential elections, a friend of mine told me about an awkward moment in his Bible study. One member of the group expressed excitement because that Sunday she had seen a bumper sticker promoting the other party in the church parking lot. She was excited because, to her, this was an indication that non-Christians had come to church. Imagine the awkwardness when another member of the group chimed in. That was, that was my bumper sticker that you saw. Friends, we can disagree about policies and politics and remain united because our common faith transcends our opposing political loyalties. Politics and politicians cannot save. Do not put your hope in them. President Obama did not save anyone. And President Trump will not save anyone. Do not be so foolish as to put your hopes in things that cannot save in brand name counterfeit gods just because they sit in the White House. No, the only king that can save, the only political personality that can save is seated at the right hand of God. Put your faith in Him. How stupid it would be for us to be divided along puny the lines of puny partisanship instead of being united in Christ. We can have different views, but our union in Jesus eclipses those differences. Oneness in Jesus' church is a musical harmony, not a dull unison. We're able to play different notes and still play the same song. We're free to disagree about a great many things, but more important about our disagreements is how we disagree. When we disagree, we want to do so lovingly and with our common faith in Christ at the forefront of our minds. We must remind ourselves, especially when we most passionately disagree, that we are one in Christ. We need to see each other as we are called to Christ, called saints by Christ, called to be the church of Christ, Baptist, Southern Baptist Church of Christ, empowered to be the church of Christ. It's our faith in Christ that unites us together despite the things that would otherwise tear us apart. What are you most tempted to divide from others over? What associations vie for Supremacy in your life, in your heart. Let's look at verse 13. Paul writes, Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or or are you baptized into Paul's name? I thank God I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. I, I, I did, in fact, Baptized the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, to preach the gospel. Not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be nullified, emptied of its effect, or emptied of its power. See, Paul here is, is not saying that baptism is insignificant, but establishing his desire to not head any of the particular brand name teacher groups. He's going to great lengths to say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And he started building this, it's all about Jesus' foundation in the first ten verses, wherein he mentions the name of Jesus ten times. This string of rhetorical questions here, it's stinging. Is Christ divided, you fools? No! Was Paul crucified for you? No. Was Apollos crucified for you? No! No! I like this. I feel like a little culture is coming in. We're getting a little call and response. Were you baptized into Paul's name? Or anyone else's name? No! Paul's point is that it's not about you, whichever brand name teacher that you are associating with. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. Friends, when you exalt any person to the place of Christ, you do so at the expense of Christ. Church, we do well to heed this warning. Exaltation of a teacher to the place where only Jesus belongs is really, really dangerous. This applies to uh, folks you read, sermons you listen to, and this applies to me as well. Do not ever forget when you come to church that Jesus is the beauty here. That he's the reason you come, not my voice. We are here together because of Jesus. It is about Jesus. Jesus was torn apart so that we could be united. Jesus was crucified for you. It's Jesus' name that you are baptized into. Let me ask you, are you dividing the body of Christ because of sinful associations? Maybe to press this last point more poignantly, if I left Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, would you? I hope not. What a terrible thing to belong to a church because of a pastor instead of because of Jesus. What an awful thing. For Christ did not send me, Paul writes, to baptize, but to evangelize. Not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its effect or power. Paul is making clear here that it is not sophisticated oratory ability that produces Christians, but the power of God. You can only believe the message of the cross when the Holy Spirit gives you a heart transplant. And takes out the hard heart of stone from within you and gives you a heart of flesh so that you might believe. It is God the Holy Spirit who creates genuine faith in sinners. Not some fast talking salesman. It is the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit of God that creates the people of God. Paul wants the Corinthians and us to know that the effect of the gospel, the power of the message of the cross to raise the dead has nothing to do with the preacher. Nothing to do even with the brand name preachers. And everything to do with God himself. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end and he alone is due the glory. It is God who calls us into faith. It is God who makes us holy by faith. It is God who will keep us in the faith. Paul just told us this in verse 8 of chapter 1. God will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, your salvation does not depend upon you, and thank God that it does not, because if it did, you would have lost it already. God is the one that is faithful. He is the one that has called you to Himself, and He is the one that will keep you in step with Himself. None of us has anything to be prideful about. No brand association will make us better than the person next to us. No brand association will make us more significant. All of us, apart from Jesus, are wicked sinners who deserve nothing more than the wrath of God in hell for eternity. Love, if you want, this is jumping ahead a little ways, but look down in verse 30 in chapter 1 if you have your Bible open. Second part of Verse 30, Paul writes, It is from Him, that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus. It's His work. Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, who became our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption, in order that as it was written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. You have nothing to be prideful about nothing to boast about in and of yourself. Everything you have is a gift from God. See, friends, when we understand the gospel, it has this uh, wonderful effect of making us really, really humble and also really confident. We understand that we are so evil, so wicked, that nothing less than the death of God himself could save us. And at the same time, we learn that God so loved us that he was glad to save us. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus goes to the cross for the joy set before him. We are that joy. It was we that he was looking to reconcile to himself. Friends, all who believe in Jesus receive the joy of Jesus. And all who receive the joy of Jesus are the joy of Jesus. He delights in his people. We are all equally delighted in there is no one upmanship among the church. We all need the grace of God just the same. So don't look for ways to outdo one another, unless it's in love, as Paul will command us later. Look for evidence of grace and encourage one another. Rejoice over God's work in each other's lives. My prayer for us as a church is that we would develop a Philippians 2 kind of DNA. So what Paul writes in Philippians 2 if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Everyone should look not only For their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, friends, the way of the cross, the way of Christian unity is humility. It's dying to yourself daily for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God. So I exhort you this morning, uproot your pride. Stop sowing discord and start sowing peace. Church, we are equipped with all we need to be peacemakers rather than divisive people. So let us approach our conflicts together with the mind of Christ. Let us approach conflict remembering the fact that we are called to be the church and to be united. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. We thank you for the sweetness of the fellowship to which you've called us. We pray that you would continue to empower us to correct sin in one another's lives, gently and lovingly. And also that you would empower us to disagree lovingly when those situations arrive. But most importantly, we ask that you would continually be reminding us of the wonderful truth that we are adopted into your family. And that family bond, being in the family of God, supersedes all other ties. The bond of the Spirit is thicker than blood or partisan relationships. Father, we pray that you would be utmost in our affections. God, we ask that you would be the center of our lives. That you would be the rope that binds us all together. We thank you that your spirit dwells in each of us. And as we gather here and look at the person next to us, we can get a sense of what you are like and what heaven will be like. Thank you for this great grace and privilege. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.